The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. We absolutely support Israel's right to defend itself in line with international law. We need to safeguard financial stability. 2024 is not going to be an easy year. We used to call it the dream of home ownership. But look at Britain now. We've got to hang on to optimism and hope because it is the biggest driver of change. Let's stop thinking of life in terms of Brexit. Let's move on and look for the future. You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Welcome to the programme. It's Wednesday, so Prime Minister's Question Day, but that's not the only action in Westminster. We're also expecting details of the UK government's deal with the Democratic Unionist Party in Northern Ireland aimed at restoring power sharing. We talked about it a lot on the programme yesterday, but we're still waiting for the details of exactly how, as promised by the DUP leader Geoffrey Donaldson, all Brexit-related checks on goods travelling from Great Britain to Northern Ireland would be removed. The only thing we've heard from the Northern Ireland Secretary, Chris Heaton-Harris, so far is that the changes are significant and they won't affect rules around diverging from EU rules. Um, The announcement, though, going to be watched closely, not only by those in Westminster and those in Northern Ireland, but also by Brussels, because they'll be watching to see whether or not the new form of, of, of rules around goods moving from Great Britain to Northern Ireland will affect its dealings with the UK and the Windsor Framework, which is of course only agreed um, about less than a year ago now. An EU spokesperson saying yesterday they hadn't been privy to the discussions between the UK government and the DUP. So potential for things to really go wrong with that too. Yeah, I uh, would also just point out that it's the anniversary of Brexit, though of course there are many different dates that you could pick, but it is four years since the UK left the EU's trade block at 11pm on the 31st of January 2020. I remember being up covering the details of that. Perhaps it's something that will be mentioned at PMQs, though it is a bit of a sore spot for both parties. Keir Starmer, of course, voted to remain in the European Union. And you could argue that the government's post-Brexit Global Britain project isn't actually going that well, at least on the free trade agreement front. We were promised deals with the US, with India, India with other countries to boost the economy but actually those ones have been held up for various reasons from migration to meat imports and the talks as well with Canada came to an abrupt halt last week. Now we've had a really interesting piece of analysis from Bloomberg Economics. Mm. They say that even if the economic hit to from Brexit will still be a slow burn happening in the background, we're still on track for a 10% hit to trade. Now, one side of all of this is 
the free trade deals. The other side, though, is migration. And actually, that's been a success story economically because it's come back in full force after the pandemic. It's come to all time highs over the past two years. It's just that its composition has changed from mainly EU arrivals to non-EU ones, which is a boon for economic growth. But politically, it's explosive. Yeah, and uh, I mean, it's become one of the really dominant issues, not only in politics in general, but also in PMQs over uh, past months as well. I mean, that trade point is really interesting to think about, too, because, of course, it is the political leadership of the day that can often drive home those trade deals when they get to the final and closing moments. One wonders whether would a change in government perhaps uh, shift the narrative around trade deals? Would Keir Starmer, if he became Prime Minister, be able to do better, quote-unquote, at winning trade deals with other countries? Because it also depends on who's in power in the other country as well. And we've got an election coming up in the US too, so that's a lot of variables potentially moving around, and that trade story could look quite different, because these are often things we don't hear about when the the you know nitty-gritty details, the perhaps less interesting stuff, is being hashed out between uh, officials in different countries. It's only really when it gets to the crash bank wallet bits that we get to hear about whether or not there's actually going to be a deal. So that'll be an interesting one to watch. And I wonder when we're talking about, you know, a fifth, sixth, seventh, tenth anniversary of this uh, exit of the UK from the European Union, whether things perhaps might look a bit different. But that all coming home to roost, really, with the Northern Ireland question that's coming up again today. Well, as I used to say as a trade correspondent, if you're bored of trade, you're bored of life. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> But <laughs> over on uh, the part in the House of Commons, they're actually doing a bit of a public service announcement. The speaker's telling everybody off for too much bad language, which is something Politico covered recently about all the swearing that's been happening. Let's see if there's any more swearing today. Here's the Labour leader, Keir Starmer. We need all sides to work together to get Stormont back up and running for the people of Northern Ireland. Yeah. Mr Speaker, I too met the families of Grace, Barnaby and Ian on Monday, um, and it's impossible to express in words the horror that they've been through and continue to go through. We must all redouble our efforts to do everything that we can to help them with their campaign. And of course, Mr Speaker, this week two young lives, 16-year-old Max and 15-year-old Mason, were taken in Bristol. And I know the whole House will join me in sending condolences to their families and their friends. Mr Speaker, one of the most difficult experiences for any member of this House is speaking to those at the sharp end of this government's cost of living crisis. So nobody could fail to be moved by the plight of the member for Mid-Norfolk. His mortgage has gone up £1,200 a month. He's been forced to quit his dream job to pay for it. A Tory MP counting the cost of Tory chaos. After 14 years, have we finally discovered what they meant when they said, we're all in this together? (laughs) Well, Mr Speaker, uh, thanks to the mortgage charter that the Chancellor introduced last year, millions of mortgage holders across the country are benefiting from support with their mortgages, because it's important rather than take the approach that the Honourable Gentleman just did, is actually focus on the practical support in place to help people who do need help. And someone on a typical mortgage is able to now save hundreds of pounds thanks to those uh, reforms. And actually what we have have recently seen 
is mortgage applications now at a multi-month high as a result of confidence returning. But if he really cared about helping people with the cost of living, Mr Speaker, he would actually do more to celebrate and acknowledge the fact that, thanks to our plan, millions of working people will now start to pay hundreds of pounds less in tax from this month's payslips, Mr Speaker. But we all know that's not a priority for him. He said he wanted to back people with a cost of living, but now he has described tax cuts, I read, as salting the earth. Uh, his shadow chancellor, it seems, is equally confused. In Davos, she said she did back tax cuts, but back here in Westminster, she called them a scorched earth policy. She, she, she obviously can't decide which Wikipedia page to copy this week. Mr Speaker, for every £2 he says he's giving people back, he's taking £10 out of their back pocket in higher tax, and he thinks they should be dancing in the street and thanking him. There are 200,000 people, Prime Minister, just like the member for Mid-Norfolk, coming off fixed-rate mortgages and paying more each and every month because they crashed the economy. Does the Prime Minister actually know how much their monthly repayments are going up by? Prime Minister, as I said, Mr Speaker, someone on a typical mortgage of about £140,000 with 17 years left is currently paying around £800 as a result of the ability to extend their mortgage term or switch to a six-month-only interest-only mortgage. They will be able to save hundreds of pounds, and that is someone on the average mortgage, uh, Mr Speaker. But again, again, Mr Speaker, again, I, he says he cares about the cost of living. The thing that would have the biggest impact on everyone's cost of living is the fact that his ideas to spend £28 billion, which we had just confirmed this morning by a shadow Treasury Minister, I heard, confirmed that they remain committed to them, but he has no plan to pay for this £28 billion, Mr Speaker. No, no plan at all. And that's typical Labour economics, because they want to keep the spending but drop the payment plan. And I actually saw at the weekend their former leader, his mentor, was clear that they'll make their sums add up with tax rises on people's assets. Their homes, their pensions, and their businesses. It's the same old Labour Party, Mr. Speaker. No plan, and back to square one with higher taxes. Mr. Speaker, they've crashed the economy, mortgages are through the roof, they've doubled the debt, and who thinks? He thinks he can stand there and lecture other people about fiscal responsibility. But he didn't answer the question. Hundreds of thousands of people are coming off fixed-rate mortgages and facing huge mortgage increases. And the Prime Minister won't even do them the courtesy of answering the question. No, he didn't. So I'll ask him again. I was very clear at the beginning, and I mean that my constituents to hear it. If yours don't, please leave. Does the Prime Minister have any idea how much mortgages are going up by this month for those coming off fixed-rate mortgages? Prime Minister. Again, I'll just point him back to my previous answer, Mr Speaker, as I went him through. Everyone's situation will be different. Someone on a typical mortgage of around £140,000, who is currently paying £800, will be able to keep their mortgage payment essentially the same by using the facilitations that the Chancellor has put in place. But again, that's what we've done to help people, Mr Speaker. But again, it's incumbent on him to explain to the British public how his, his 
his policy of decarbonising the grid by 2030 is going to be funded. He won't give the answers, but helpfully, the Shadow Energy Secretary popped up at the weekend in an interview in the Sunday Times. He said they don't need a plan to pay for it, Mr Speaker, because, in his words, it will produce real savings and it makes clear economic sense. Now, the Shadow Leader here doesn't want to talk about it at all, but let me tell him, I see all these years later, it's the same story. The Right Honourable Member for Doncaster North has carved a promise in stone and everyone else just looks away in embarrassment. Mr Speaker, he just doesn't get it. They crashed the economy, mortgages skyrocketing, doubling the debt. They say, they say they're going to they're max out the government's credit card at the next budget. But he won't. Order. I think the Chief Whip's getting very carried away. He doesn't want to lead everybody for a cup of tea, does he? Come on! They have forfeited the right to be lecturing others about the economy. Somebody coming off a fixed-rate mortgage is going to be paying an average of £240 more each and every month. A constant reminder that working people are paying the price for the damage that they've done to the economy. This week, I met one of the employees at Iceland in Warrington, Phil. I'm sure Phil would be. Order. Mr. Gibson. So, sorry. Mr. Starmer. Order. Order. The vo- same voice keeps appearing again. It won't appear anymore. So I'm just letting you know now. Kiss down. La- laughing at an employee at Iceland who's struggling Shame. with his mortgage. Shame. He told me that his mortgage is going up by a staggering £1,000 a month, Prime Minister. He doesn't want other averages, other people, other stories. That's what's happening to him. If the member for Mid-Norfolk on £120,000 can't afford this Tory government, how on earth can people like Phil? Well, actually, Mr Speaker, thanks to the management of the economy, Phil and millions... I think... Phil and millions of people like him are now ensuring that inflation is less than half of the rate that it was when we were talking a year ago, putting more money in their pocket. And thanks to this government, Phil and millions of other workers, not just at Iceland, but across the country, are benefiting this month in their pay packet for a tax cut worth hundreds of pounds for someone on an average salary. But I hope he explained to Phil, he explained to Phil the cost of his policies. Did he explain to Phil? Did he explain to Phil how Phil is going to have to pay for his £28 billion green spending spree? How it's going to cost Phil in higher taxes, more coming out of his pay packet? And did he explain to Phil that he'd be better off sticking with our plan rather than going back to square one with him? I would invite the Prime Minister to get in touch with Phil and explain to him how paying £1,000 more on his mortgage is making him better off, because that's not how he feels. He's just so out of touch. It's unbelievable. Finding hundreds of pounds extra a month, that may not seem like a big deal to the Prime Minister. But let me tell him, most people don't have that sort of money knocking around. And if that wasn't bad enough, Mr Speaker, this week... He told every council in the country to put their council tax up by the maximum of 5%. That's 26 tax rises now, Prime Minister. And he says everything's fine, people are better off. But when people see their mortgages going up, 
their council tax going up, food prices still going up. Who does he expect them to believe? His boasts or their bank account? Minister. Well, Mr. Mr. Speaker, again, I, I was puzzled because he, again he resorts, as always, to the politics of envy here. But after recently, after recently and repeatedly, uh, recently and repeatedly attacking not just me but the government for lifting the bonus cap, I was genuinely surprised to see that the Shadow Chancellor just today has announced that she now supports the government's policy on the banker's bonus cap. I don't, I, don't know, I don't know if he mentioned that to Phil when he was having a chat with him, but I'm sure he can, he can fill us up. But I can tell him that trust, uh, trust and economic credibility come from sticking to a plan, but it's becoming clear you cannot trust a word that he says. When the Shadow Chancellor says or claims that they won't borrow much, they won't raise Phil's taxes, we now know, we now know that those promises simply again, they just aren't worth the Wikipedia page they were copied from. Yeah. Mr Speaker, I actually didn't expect him to be laughing at Phil. I did not expect him to be laughing at Phil. Not addressing I made this statement very clear. I don't Prime Minister. It's very serious that we make sure that people here, both you and the Leader of the Opposition, it matters to the people who watch the proceedings of this chamber, and it's not good in the behaviour that seems to be carried out. Prime Minister. The Prime Minister just doesn't get how hard it is for millions of people across the country like Phil. That is the primary problem, struggling with their mortgages, their bills, the spiralling cost of living. And the Prime Minister's response is never to take responsibility, show contrition, or even any level of basic understanding. He's so detached, he thinks he can paint a world in which their problems simply don't exist. The problem is, he can't even fool his own MPs, let alone anyone else. The member for Mid Norfolk says he's exhausted, he's looking forward to new opportunities outside of Parliament. Why doesn't the Prime Minister do him a favour, call an election, so he and the whole country can move on? Oh, Mr. Oh, Mr. Speaker, Mr. Speaker, thank you, Mr. Speaker. But whether it's Phil, whether it's everyone else across the country, the plan that we're putting in place is working to help people, and we're making progress. Just this week, taking action to stop children from vaping just this week ensuring that people can visit their pharmacies to get the health care they need, freeing up millions of GP appointments, and just this week millions of working people starting to see hundreds of pounds of tax cuts delivered in their pay packet, Mr Speaker. That is a plan that is working. All he's offering is £28 billion of tax rises, and that is the choice, Mr Speaker. It's a brighter future with us, or back to square one with them. So that was this week's Prime Minister's Questions. Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer facing off in what turned out to be quite an economic-focused Prime Minister's Questions, Lizzie. Although, I would also say, yet another very rowdy week at Prime Minister's Questions. We were just talking about going into it, how uh, the Speaker had been warning MPs about essentially behaving themselves while the two party leaders 
were speaking, but there were, I would say, more interruptions than usual. Things are getting pretty fractious in that house. And how many mentions of Phil? Who on earth is Phil from <laughs> Iceland? I'm sure he's going to be interviewed by the sun tomorrow. But look, both leaders want this to be an economic election. Sunak's advisers privately say they think this is Starmer's weak spot and Sunak's strength. Of course, Rishi Sunak used to be the chancellor. Sunak wants to talk about tax cuts. He heard You heard him there suggesting that Labour can't make their mind up about whether they want them or not. But equally, Starmer wants to hammer home this message that the Conservatives gave up the right to lecture others about the economy with Liz Truss's mini budget. Well, Sunak's going to hope that the Bank of England is cutting rates by the time of the election so that people like Phil at Iceland are feeling richer. But the bank's not expected to do that tomorrow. No, and look, there's so much discussion there about the cost of mortgages and how people refinancing their mortgages are facing these big increases in uh, the cost of their repayments as well. Mortgage costs are coming down. We see that in the you know the weekly newsletter from Moneyfax, for example, pointing to the fact that you are able to get cheaper mortgages now than you were before. But when we think about sort of the source of where that all comes from, the source of all interest rates, the Bank of England, when when we think about the decision that we're going to have from the bank tomorrow as well, there's no big changes happening. What we're looking at in terms of real, real, the rates that people are actually paying on their mortgages, it's a very slow decline from the peaks that we saw around the the mini budget crisis. Yeah, well, earlier this morning, Stephen, you and I got to speak to Alex Brazier, who's deputy head at BlackRock Investment Institute. Uh, And it's really interesting to get him in the studio ahead of the Bank of England decision tomorrow, which, of course, as I say, is going to be crucial for politics when the cost of living crisis is top of the political agenda, though we aren't expecting those cuts just yet. Take a listen. Well, first of all, they all, they all write their own speeches. Uh, but actually, you know, Andrew has got a difficult job at the minute. They've made really good progress on inflation. And I do think it's important not to forget that. I think, though, they'll want to inject a sense of caution into how far interest rates could be cut this year. I know the IMF's been reasonably cautious in what it's penciled in. I think there are two things really to try and unpack this year. One is, is wage growth going to come down as inflation comes has come down? Wage growth still on the face of it a bit too strong to be sure that inflation is going to settle at two. But the other for the UK is that we haven't really seen much growth over the last few years, and yet the economy doesn't have much slack in it because productivity growth's been very weak. The labour force hasn't really grown. So for the bank, it's really got to kind of grapple with the outlook for those supply side issues as much as with the kind of standard ups and downs of spending. How much of a risk is is fiscal policy? Is the IMF right that the UK uh, shouldn't be cutting taxes in the upcoming budget? In fact, it wants them to be raising taxes. I'm not sure we, sure we learned much from the IMF yesterday that we didn't already know. I mean, the U- UK fiscal position has been very clear for a while now. The deficit's reasonably large. And as the Office of Budget Responsibility said last year, you know, it's going to take probably a combination of spending restraint, a rising share of taxes and GDP and renewed growth to stabilise debt to GDP. And I think the key thing to understand here is that if we're in an environment where interest rates do come down, 
but they don't go back to the levels that we thought were normal before. Then actually that's a challenge for a lot of things in the economy, including fiscal policy, because stabilising debt in a higher rate environment means you need to run smaller deficits or, or bigger surpluses. Well, on that subject of fiscal policy, BlackRock indeed has warned about the bond vigilantes if Keir Starmer or Rishi Sunak are too exuberant in their spending pledges ahead of the general election. But lots of commentators we speak to say they're no way near as worried about Starmer or Sunak as they were about Liz Truss. What's the worst case scenario realistically here? Well, actually, I think the UK fiscal position, although it faces these challenges, is now so clear that most political parties understand that. And there isn't really anyone running on a platform this year of huge fiscal expansion, for example. So the differences between the parties will be about spend at the margin how much spending versus how much tax uh, and that that's important from a political point of view but from a market point of view it's much less important than the fact that overall there's a credible plan to stabilize debt and so i, I think post the the you know the the, the guilt ep- guilt market episode uh, actually there's quite a wide appreciation now that the uk needs a credible plan to stabilize debt to gdp and i think all political parties are attuned to that So there you have it. For all Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer wanted to sling mud at each other about fiscal responsibility, Alex Brazier, deputy head of the BlackRock Investment Institute, says that both of them seem to be pretty sensible when it comes to fiscal responsibility. Yeah, and look, Alex Brazier is someone who knows the Bank of England very well. He worked there for 21 years, so he has plenty uh, of insight into how, I suppose, the thinking that happens inside the Bank of England, because we are, again, back at one of those junctures where We'll be listening very closely to tomorrow's Bank of England decision. We're not expecting interest rates to change, but what we will do is get an update about what the Bank of England thinks about another big political issue, inflation. (laughs) Yeah, and interestingly, I think... uh what will be very crucial is the updated forecast. You get this quarterly from the Bank of England and... It'll be interesting to see where they think inflation and growth will be two and three years out. Because if we get a raft of rate cuts in 2024, not yet, but later in the year, they might say that'll boost growth and that might mean that inflation comes back for the UK economy. Yeah, and look, you know, we've also had this kind of running conversation as well about what the timing of rate cuts might mean for the timing of the election as well. If we get the rate cuts earlier on in the year, is that going to be something that's going to hold the election a little bit longer so that the government can point to, for example, people's mortgage costs coming down as something that they have achieved and thus might put people in a bit better of a mood while they're going to the ballot box? Well, of course, the government already has tried to take credit for lowering inflation. But I reckon politicians have been thinking twice about this with all of the disruption in the Middle East and the prospect that maybe that conflict could mean that inflation goes up again. Yeah, I mean, meanwhile, we have also had the latest numbers on what's happening with the housing market, which is related to all of these stories, of course, as well. House prices rising a little bit more than had been forecast this month, according to Nationwide, 0.7% up. So more than had been expected. It's the strongest reading, actually, in 12 months. So perhaps better news for those who are trying to sell their homes, although less good news for those who are trying to buy their homes as well. Um, And that two-year mortgage number, which, again, so central to the conversation at Prime Minister's Quest, today, that's fallen down to about 5.2% according to Bonifax compared to some 7% last summer as well. So plenty of food for thought as we wrap up the coverage of the Prime Minister's questions today and look ahead 
to the Bank of England decision tomorrow. That is it from us for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe. Give it five stars so other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by James Wilcock and our audio engineer was Marufal Hussain. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Stephen Cowell. No show from us tomorrow. We'll bring you coverage of the Bank of England's interest rate decision on Bloomberg Radio, but we'll be back with more on Friday. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.